1: your brains what's your favorite scary movie <laughs> Vidi well little brother pretty well.
0: <laughs> well welcome everybody to episode number 60 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide here of david garrett jr recorded out of columbus ohio now this is going to be the last episode that i put out here for 2020 so this is my year and winter number nine and on this episode i have featured reviews that are going to be a puka double feature. As i have into the dark puka and into the dark puka lives as the reviews that i will have you know as i said featured on this as i had never seen either of these into the dark episodes so i figured Getting into the holiday spirit would be a good time to watch these. And then for my what I've watched for this week, I have my 1960s film of 13 Ghosts, The Cleansing Hour, Possessor, and Rent-A-Pal. So I'm still trying to get in as many 2020 watches as I can before you know everything comes to an end. Because next episode is going to be something I did last year as well of my you know year-end list but i'll get into that more in my outro so i really just kind of wanted to uh, you know get you prepared for what was going to be on this episode there i know i'm rambling on a little bit but what i am going to do though is get you over to the first musical break before i get into those mini reviews and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me
1: s a n Better not pout, I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town Oh, he's making a list, checking it twice toy drums rooty toot toot and rummy tum tums Santa Claus is coming to town little toy dolls they're cuddling Toyland town, all around the Christmas. And then they're gonna burn it down. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. Santa Claus is coming. Santa Claus is coming to town. I'm
0: And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be also my Journey Through the Aughts movie that I watched for this week of 13 Ghosts from 1960. This is directed by William Castle. It was written by Rob White and it stars Charles Herbert, Joe Morrow, and Martin Milner. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United States that is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb. And a 3.0 on Letterbox with the synopsis being a family inherits what proves to be a haunted house, but a pair of special goggles allows them to see their ghostly tormentors. Now this is a movie that I sought out after college when I realized that the 13 ghosts I had grown up watching as a teen was a remake of this movie here. Now I'll be honest, I did enjoy this for the after this first viewing that I had, but I didn't love it. And it was one that I figured I needed to revisit, which is why I'm doing it now. And just to kind of give you just a little bit more backstory is that we get this interesting opening introduction here from Castle, who is also the director of the film, as I had said, is that he warns you that if you don't believe in ghosts, to use this special viewer that you were given when you entered the theater. Now, for those that do believe, you can use the, I believe it is the blue filter, which will show the ghosts, and then they use the red to make them where they don't appear. I'm not sure if I have those backwards or not, but I think it's along those lines where You can see some of them with one of them, and then you you can't see anything with the other one. Now, for this movie, we're following the Zorba family. Now, the father is Cyrus, who is portrayed by Donald Woods. Now, he gets a call from his wife, who is Hilda, portrayed by Rosemary DeCamp. Now, she's quite upset as their furniture is being taken away due to late payments, but there's really nothing they can do because they don't have the money to kind of make and catch up on their payments for those. Now, that night is their son's birthday, and his name is Buck, and he's portrayed by Herbert. Now, he's really excited about the gift that was given to him by his older sister, Medea, who's portrayed by Morrow. Now, it's a book about ghost stories. When Buck goes to blow out his candles, he makes a wish that they, that they would have a house that has furniture that no one could take away. That's when there's a knock at the door, and there's a telegram for Cyrus about meeting an attorney by the name of Benjamin Rush, who we will see is portrayed by Milner. Now, the next day he goes to visit them, and that's when he learns that his uncle had passed away. His uncle's name is Plato Zorba. Now, this confuses Cyrus as he thought his uncle had passed away years ago, but it appears that he wanted it to be look that way and then was working in secrecy on some experiments. There isn't any money left to him, but there is the house. It is fully furnished, paid in full, and the taxes are taken care of. It puts them in a much better place and able to get ahead on their bills, but they also get a odd pair of goggles that is left to them in a box. Now the downside to this is that the house is haunted and Benjamin is concerned when the family is moving in there and he's worried about what could happen to them. Also coming with the house is Elaine Zacharias who is portrayed by Margaret Hamilton. Now she's the housekeeper but we actually realized she had a much closer relationship to Plato than they realized originally. Now Benjamin's worries aren't unfounded. The first night Buck finds a Ouija board. As a family they decide to play with it but things turn scary when it tells them that one of them will die. Cyrus also has an encounter with some of these ghosts, and a 13 is burned into his hand. The following night, Medea gets a scare in her room. There is something keeping these ghosts bound to Earth, but not everyone is as they seem. Now, this is kind of interesting, because the last time I watched this, it was probably almost close to a decade between this watch and that one. And the first thing I really want to delve into is that this is a castle gimmick film. It was filmed in Illusiono. This is a where I had a special viewers. I was saying to that... And also he refers to in the intro that when you look through the red filter it'll allow you to see the ghosts if you look through the blue you can't see them the movie actually has text when you're supposed to put your viewers up i do think this hurts the movie though having the benefit of watching this at home where you don't need a filter to see everything i understand why i need to factor that in it sets up the scares though is my problem with it now this isn't much different from you know a bad jump scare but this movie is shot well so i will give credit to castle there and i also think the cinematography is just pretty solid and i will also say i don't really remember the main story but i did get sucked into it and i don't remember how it played out until i was you know kind of getting closer to the end it is pretty interesting to be honest as the rumor here is that plato didn't trust those around him pulled all of his money out of banks and investments and then he hid the money somewhere in the house benjamin and elaine tried to find it but they were unable to now plato does have some secret hiding places which i'm also kind of a sucker for as this is also partially like an old dark house film now something else that i kind of like is that we do get some backstory for the ghosts there is a cook that murdered his wife and her lover with a meat cleaver he haunts the kitchen with that couple and then there's also this magician who was a lion tamer he met disastrous results when his lion killed him now the ghost of the lion is also there now, Plato went around the world to research ghosts and brought some of them back with him. What I would have liked, though, is that even more of the history of these ghosts, like we get in the remake, there is this flaming skeleton, and executioner, and even this weird swirling fire. I just kind of want to know more about those, because I think those are more interesting than some of the other things. Now, I will go to the acting next, which I think it fits for the era, but it is very vanilla. It feels like a TV, like, family show that is shown on the big screen. That's not to say it's necessarily bad, though. I just don't necessarily feel like it's realistic at times. Herbert is solid as a child actor. I like the how naive he is, and you would expect that, and he does well there. Morrow is fine as his older sister. She falls for Benjamin, which... I- You'd probably even get today, but it is what it is. It doesn't ruin the movie. I'm just not always the biggest fan. Milner is solid as well. I really like the change that comes over his character. DeCamp is funny and just tired of the life that they had before moving into this house. She loves her family, but she's also exhausted, so these hauntings aren't making things easier. Wood's as good as the father, and I really like to see Hamilton as Elaine here. The more we learn about her, the better she becomes. And There's also a lot of jokes about her being a witch, which is referencing her role from The Wizard of Oz as the Wicked Witch i would say that the rest of the actors who were in the movie as well as playing ghosts did well for running this out for what was needed i think the sound design's pretty solid as well as the soundtrack there's moaning and screaming that we get in this movie that made me feel uncomfortable so i have to give credit there thought the music kind of fit for what was needed aside from that so i will say this movie i don't feel like is great but i did come up on my rating of it I know quite a few of people have this as like a beloved film for them and it really is a time capsule of an era of how the family unit and stresses you know would be with them with their plates and I have to give credit for the gimmick that Castle went for he really knew what he had to do to kind of get people into the seats now I will say that some of the scares here are p- bit telegraphed I still find this to be interesting enough and I find it to be an above average movie for me and I came in with a 7 out of 10 here and for my second review I have The Cleansing Hour from 2019 This is directed by Damien Levesque, who also wrote the screenplay along with Aaron Horwitz, who came up with the story on top of that as well. This stars Ryan Guzman, Kyle Gallner, and Alex Angelis. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Another Successful Exorcism, streamed online, or so it seems. Can the Exorcist, producer, and the team bring up the ratings? Ratings, though, skyrocket when a real demon gets involved. Now, this is a movie that I believe I heard some podcasters talking about and being one that I knew it was making its festival rounds and seemed to be getting, you know, a little bit of buzz there. Now, as the year-end was approaching, I knew it was one that I needed to see as part of my year-end watches to ensure that I didn't miss any movies that could be potential top films. I knew this was about exorcisms, but aside from that, I came in pretty blind with just a, you know, few things here and there. And I almost feel like I wrote a article about this one back when I was still writing for A Nightmare on Film Street as well. Now for the movie we're following Father Max Tyler, who is Guzman, as he's performing an exorcism on Umberto. And then the production is being led by his best friend of Drew, who is Gallner. Now also working with them on the set is Drew's fiance of Lane, who is Angelise. She's doing makeup. There's Chris, who is Chris Lou Comhoy who is the sound guy and then we have tommy who is daniel hoffman gill doing special effects and his niece of riley is a new pa now they have another successful episode that is you know for their live stream but it is becoming a bit stagnant and drew wants to do something different to spice it up but max you know is pretty hard-headed now we get to kind of get a view of you know both of these guys as we have max who's pretending to be a priest as well as an exorcist He did go to Catholic school along with Drew, and that's where they became friends. But we see that when he hooks up with a fan that he never actually fully took the vows. And then we also get a little bit more to this as we get some uh, flashbacks. Now, Drew and Lane are to be married, and she wants him to move on to better things, but it's a little bit too comfortable, and we get to learn a little bit later as to why that is. But it's also successful enough where they can, you know, survive. Now, things all take a turn, though on the next episode where a drag queen is supposed to be the possessed actor but something happens to them on their way over lane has to step in which annoys max at first but then drew points out it's either her or they cancel chris seemed to have been taking some bad drugs as he's you know getting sick he sees something that terrifies him and lane isn't acting she ends up really becoming possessed whatever demon is inside of her causes some very bad things to happen that ends up with you know taking tommy's life the demon then sets some ground rules for the show drew cannot come on camera He can't cut the feed. They have one hour to figure out the demon's name and exorcise it, or it'll take Lane's life. If any of these rules are broken, it will also take her life. The demon does give clues as they go, and Drew has to figure out in the database that he's created on who they're dealing with before it is too late. This demon also causes uh, them to confess their darkest secrets, which will push Max and Drew's friendship to the brink. Now, just going to start this off, I like the concept of this movie. Now, we have a ton of exorcist films out there, both good and bad. Now, we also have, you know, legitimate priests doing battle with the forces of evil, and we have some like we're getting here that are doing it for more entertainment. I also really enjoy here that we are giving, you know, what we're seeing at face value of being an exorcism. That is before realizing that it's just staged for a show. The movie has a modern feel as well as that Max is worried about his social media standing and followers. Now, I'll admit, I've fallen into this trap myself, not to the extent of this character, but I have monitored when I've, you know, gained and lost followers. We also have an interesting backstory here. Max isn't lying when he recounts that he went to Catholic school. The flashbacks we get show him and a younger Drew. What is interesting is that he claims that he always wanted to be an exorcist, when the truth of the matter is he could never remember the prayers. Drew really cares about him and tries to you know cheat to help him while they were in school, and they were punished by a villainous schoolmarm who is portrayed by Joanna David, and she was quite vicious. This comes into play as the entity possessing Lane is mimicking this person that tormented Max. Now. The religious upbringing is something else that I really like. Now, personally, I've never been a regular churchgoer for long stretches of my life, but the study of religion is something that really kind of interesting to me. This movie has an interesting take on it in that we know that early on that Max is a phony. He's making quite a bit of money, and he's able to maintain the lifestyle that he has, and it's fascinating to look at the dangers of capitalism, but I'll be honest, I can't fault this streaming show for taking advantage of people that are willing to give their money over On top of that, I love the look at how religion can be exploited if those that are following it aren't paying attention as well. Now what I like next here is that we have a real possession here. The movie moves at a good pace that Max, Drew and those involved don't believe it but quickly have to change their mind when they see what happens to Tommy. I love seeing Drew and even Riley trying to piece this together through context clues. Drew is in the middle of making these old books about demons and compiling the information into this online database, and I'm loving that the demon names of Astaroth and Paimon come up, as I've seen both of these demons' names in different movies you know, fairly recently. Now, this is what I'm referring to about the history of religion as well. There is a great reveal as to who this demon really is, and the implication of what happens in the end is great for me, and you know, what ends up getting revealed throughout. Now, as for the acting, I think Guzman is really good as a lead here. He has this arrogance about him that, you know, due to his success of his show and how he looks, this ordeal really gives him a reality check that breaks him. And I also need to bring up Gallner here as well, because I'll be honest, I didn't recognize him at first. Now, he was an actor that was pretty popular back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, with some of the movies that, you know, many of us now aren't the biggest fans of. But together, these two feel like best friends, and I love to see that they need to confess these sins of the past in order to try to survive all of this. Because this demon that is in charge here is you know, forcing them to do so and it'll you know, hurt people around them if they don't do it. Angelisa is pretty attractive but I also really like her performance as this possessed person. She gets to play two different characters and I think she does well at playing both of them. So I would actually say she's the best of the trio. And the rest of the cast and crew are really just here to round this out for what was needed. But let's be honest this is really a three person movie for the most part. I think next I'll go to the effects here. I think for the most part, they actually went practical, which I'm always a fan of. There's blood and some of the things that happen to characters look really good. I do know there's some CGI that was also here, but for the most part, really just kind of there to enhance different things. I'm not sure if what they did with those that are possessed with their eyes, if it was contacts or computers, but I think that's a cool effect. We do get some creatures here that are CGI, but there's a reveal for them that I can be quite forgiving, even though because they don't look great. Now, this movie also has a feel of found footage for those watching it around the world, and I really like that idea that they're playing with here, as many don't believe that it's real until it's, you know, too late. So this is really one that, like I said, I found this to be a kind of an interesting take on the Exorcism-type film. I don't think it's great, but I definitely think this is a good movie and would recommend giving this one a watch, especially if you're into Possession films. And, I mean, if you have Shudder, you might as well just give it a go since you can watch it on there for free. So I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then up next I have for you is I gave a rewatch to Possessor. Now, this is originally was on episode number 49 as one of the featured reviews on there, so if you want to hear a more in-depth review, I would definitely direct you over to you know that episode here on Journey with a Cinephile. But for this movie, it is written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg. It stars Andrea Riseborough, Christopher Abbott, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. This is a horror sci-fi thriller that is a co-production between Canada and the United Kingdom and it is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being possessor follows an agent who works for a secretive organization that uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies ultimately driving them to commit assassinations for high paying clients. Now another one of these ones that I'm not going to do like a full review since I do have that other episode where you can kind of hear all that. just kind of go over some of the things that I really like is that I enjoy the espionage aspect of this because this feels a little bit like Assassin's Creed where they're implanting these things in people's heads so they can take their bodies over and that way they're able to assassinate people and have a scapegoat and everything like that but it's interesting here though is that We see that our main character of Tasia, who is Riseboro, losing grip with reality, and that allows Colin to fight back, and it isn't done in a cheesy way. She just notices little things, but then, you know, keeps them to herself, which ends up becoming problematic later. Her handler of Girdler tells her that she needs to, like, report these things, but she's so strong-willed and thinks that she can do these things and doesn't want to mess up that she kind of keeps them to herself. We do have some body horror that's in this movie that I really kind of enjoy, is that you don't necessarily expect that, and I wasn't necessarily sure if, you know, this was actually going to go that far into it, but I think that they do some great things with the effects there, and they do everything practical that they can, and I also think they have some really good stuff with the cinematography as they use some colored filters and stuff with lights, and it's kind of interesting there is that they have blue when things are a little bit more calm, and then red as things start to you know, fall apart around everything. I do enjoy the stuff with, like I said, the assassination. And then we also run into this problem where their brains are melting together of Tasia and Colin, as Colin is Christopher Abbott, who is the one that's being inhabited at this point. And I also think that after the second viewing, I didn't ever realize how terrifying this company is, is that John Priest, who is Sean Bean, is they're using hacking and illegal use of people's cameras on different devices but they're using it where they can see things in people's homes now the job that colin has is that they're looking for curtains and he has to describe them and i think this is probably being done to tailor data to sell to companies so they can target the right products to customers but it's just scary that they're using this and watching people you know and looking for this type of things thought the acting was really good across the board Risebro just has this great look about her where she just looks disheveled and just worn out i think that fits i like lee in this solid you know smaller role here abbott is really good as well i think the rest of the cast just rounds us out for what was needed and i'll be honest i definitely came up on this one i heard a lot of people were being high on it so that's why i gave it a rewatch and then after seeing it again there's just little things that i didn't notice that first time around that just kind of really worked for me and this one definitely has you know catapulted itself into my top five for the year and my rating on this movie is going to be a nine out of ten And for my last mini-review of this week, I have Rent-A-Pal from 2020. This is written and directed by John Stevenson. This stars Will Wheaton, Brian landis Falklands, and Amy Rutledge. This is a a horror thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being set in 1990 a lonely bachelor named david searches for an escape from the day-to-day drudgery of caring for his aging mother while seeking a partner through a video dating service he discovers a strange vhs tape called Renapal that changes his life now this is another 2020 film that i heard people talking about and i added it to my list of films that i should see before the year ended i really didn't know a whole lot about it to be honest aside from the title and that you know i said people were enjoying it Now, we are following the character of David, who is portrayed by Brian Landis Falklands. Now, we started this movie off with opening credits that really reminded me of my childhood. Things look quite 80s here, but it doesn't feel like they're ramming that down our throats for the era that it is set in. Now, David, as it says, is watching a video looking for a match. He lives with his mother, Lucille, who's portrayed by Kathleen Brady, as she also has dementia, so it's a rough go for him for sure. Now, the movie does very well in establishing how this service works. David is bummed that when he calls in Diane, portrayed by Adrian Egolf, states that you know it could happen where he's been doing this for six months but they haven't given him any sort of matches she does recommend coming in and updating his video since he really has only done his first video and hasn't done anything since and sometimes it can you know a fresh look at it and a fresh approach can kind of kind of change things around for you now, what I also get from the service is that they're nickel and diming him as everything that he does there costs money, from getting new tapes to getting his tape redone to kind of getting his matches and everything like that. It's hard to blame him because that is what the service is trying to do in order to make their money. Now, while he's waiting, he does see a VHS in their bargain bin called Renipal. Now, when he brings it home, he gets this oddly charismatic host of Andy, who is portrayed by Wheaton. David watches it for a bit before shutting it off, but the things take a turn when Diane calls and leaves a message that they found him a match. The woman's name is Lisa, and she is portrayed by Amy Rutledge, and they have similar interests. In his rush, though, to go to their building, he forgets his wallet. Now, they won't release a tape to him without paying, and by the time he returns with his card, Lisa has a different match. Now, this devastates him. He goes home, turns on Renapal, and drinks heavily. He starts to watch the tape over and over again, building a kinship with the person on it. Now, things take a different turn when Lisa's other match didn't work out, and Diane reaches out to David. Now, his mother is causing him a lot of stress with her condition, and Andy seems to be getting jealous, or that's what David perceives. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap of those movies that get you up to speed, and this is another one of those one that's a character study of this character of David. He's quite lonely, and as the movie progresses with him talking to Andy, we learn that his mother was quite hard on him and his father wasn't around a lot. With his mother's condition, he really gave up on his life to care for her. He's not a great looking guy, and he's a little bit weird, so this all contributes to how he feels. Now I feel bad for him, and we also get to see him descend into madness, which is where I'm going to go next. Now, another aspect to this movie is the Renatape. tape Is it cursed or is it something along those lines? My interpretation of this is no. We never see anyone else watch it, so it isn't something that we can compare. And we never also get, like, stories of anything like this happening. What I think is happening, though, is that David is using this as an outlet. He does build confidence from watching it. We see him tidying up his room and making it feel like how he would want it. There really are some positive effects from watching it at first. The problem, though, is that he's mentally unstable as he descends into madness he thinks he is talking to him and he becomes too close to something that isn't real i also feel like his psychosis is making him feel guilty when lisa comes into his life it is partially him afraid of getting too close to her and it is something new that he's never experienced he's fallen too much into his comfort zone and this is you know trying to get him to get out of that now I also really have to give Fulkins a lot of credit for his performance. He plays his character so well. I saw someone on social media talking about this movie stating that it does well in making you feel sympathy for the villain. I would agree to, with that and to add on, we spend most of the time following David and connecting with him. Fulkins brings this character to life and it makes me feel almost like this could be him on a normal basis which makes me feel bad to say, but he did such a great performance that that's how it feels. Wheat is really good as Andy. He brings this all through dialogue and for the most part it is just recorded. It is synced up so well to appear like the conversations are actually happening. He brings an interesting charisma to the role, and I think that Rutledge, Brady, and the rest of the cast rounded us out for what was needed. And the last thing to really go over would be the effects and soundtrack. There really isn't a lot of the former, but there is some blood that looks good. This is all done practical, which I'm a fan of, and they did a great job with the cinematography. I give a lot of props for making this look like it's a recorded on VHS. There's a grainy feel to it, so I'm glad they didn't go crazy with that And you know was what being watched on tv and then upgrading that to hd the soundtrack also fit for you know the era and then the movie you know feels like it all feels natural and kind of building that atmosphere that they're going for so i have to give credit there so like i said this is an interesting film for sure i thought it was good and i think that everything i said here you know kind of enforces that i don't necessarily know if i'll ever go higher on it because it is lacking a little bit of depth to the story for me and i mean i do like to see this character descend into madness so that was really good in my opinion so I would say that this is a good movie overall and came in with an eight out of 10 on this one. So what I'm gonna go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Are you from around here?
1: I'm not, I'm an actor. This is Puka. Meet need somebody who can bring him to life. But he's unpredictable.
0: Meet this year's new hottest toy, Puka.
1: I feel like everything is working out. I have this job and this girl, but then there's this danger. Where are you going? I think there's something wrong with me. You need to leave now. I need to get away. Away from causing pain. I'm losing time. I'm losing control.
0: For my first featured review here, I have I have an Into the Dark episode of Puka. Now this is directed by Nacho Villarando. This is written by Gerald Olson. It stars Nayasha Hatendi, Lartarsha Rose, John Daly, as well as Dale Dickey, Johnny Berryman, Brian Billy Boone, Caden Dragomir, Alex Jane Goh, Nicholas Sean Johnny, Diane Sellers, Cliff Weisman. Katie Wilson, Willie G. Brown, and Lavinia Vaca. This is a horror thriller that is from the United States, and it is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb, as well as a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a struggling actor takes a seasonal holiday job as the mascot for the year's hottest new toy, Puka. However, after putting the costume on, he develops two personalities, one for himself and one for Puka. Now, I remember when this episode of Into the Dark was dropped, and it was one of the first episodes, I believe, that they did, and I ended up looking it up. I believe this is, like, number three. Now, Puka seems to be a pretty popular amongst some and disliked by others, and, heck, I even knew of it without, you know, actually seeing it until now. I figured that since this was the first Christmas episode of Into the Dark, that and they also made a sequel that I could, you know, do a pair-up of a double feature here, and since the sequel also came out, you know, this year of 2020 as well. Now, before I jump into the movie, I just have a few notes about some of the key players here. Vigilando is the director of 20 films. Now, his first foray into horror was one that I really enjoyed with Time Crimes. He then went on to do a short in The ABCs of Death, which I didn't really love that movie, but I haven't seen it in a while, so I do need to come back and give it a reviewing. Now, he also has done The Profane Exhibit, a short in VHS Viral, which wasn't... That movie overall wasn't great, and then he did this movie... Now for the writer of Olsen, this is the only thing in the horror genre that he's written. Now, the only other credit that I see for them is a drama called Back to School Mom. Then the star of this movie is Hatendi. Now, this is somebody who has three acting credits in features. The other two are ghostwriter and replicas, making this the only horror film that they've done. His co-star of Rose has only been in three films. Now much like her co-star though, this is the only horror film now she was in the hunger games and holiday for heroes as the other two and then we have Daly that has been in 27 films to his credit this is the only horror film though for him and i have only seen him in one other movie and that was the comedy of masterminds now for this movie we start off hearing the phrase repeated over and over again look at the pretty lights something seems to be on fire and then there are red and blue police lights that are going we then also see a person in them this then cuts us to the apartment of wilson close who is attendee He's a struggling actor from the synopsis. He's just moved into this apartment and he's kind of getting acclimated. Now, we see about him going about his mundane routine of riding the bus, going to a coffee shop, and then returning home. He does see a flyer for an audition. Wilson locks himself out of his apartment and needs his neighbor of Red, who is portrayed by Dickie, to let him in. The two of them become friends as she is lonely herself. Things then change for Wilson, though, when he goes to this audition. He studied his lines inside and out, but things don't go as planned when he arrives. The casting director, who is portrayed by Sellers, hears a line from him and then cuts him off. Wilson asks for some questions, for some guidance, you know, that he can do it differently or do it better. And then up on a balcony, we have Finn, who is portrayed by Daly. They have him do some weird things, which end up being a dance. Wilson does them well enough, and then he's given the part. The part isn't what Wilson was expecting, though. He's to be inside of a large puka suit. But the money is amazing and no one will ever know it is him so he doesn't have to really worry about it ruining him as an actor for a bit more backstory puka is the new hot toy in town it will listen to what you say record it and then it'll say some of the things back to you it can be nice when it says them or with it and it'll have blue eyes or if it is going to be naughty and it'll say something you know kind of bad back to you it'll have red eyes there's a little bit of a kind of plot hole device here but i'm not really going to hold it against the movie because it isn't that big of a deal to me Now, Wilson's life is looking up even more when he meets Melanie Burns, who's portrayed by Rose. She's a real estate agent that he's seen a couple different places. The two of them hit it off, and Wilson does what he can to impress her son of Ty, who is Berryman. The problem, though, is that Wilson is losing himself in puka. Bad things are happening, and Wilson isn't sure what is going on. When things turn violent and aggressive, can Wilson get his life back under control before it is too late? Now, I'll be honest I didn't know what to expect coming in. I've already said that I knew about the character but I wasn't sure what type of movie this was actually going to be. I didn't even realize that Vigolando was the director until settling in to watch this. Not saying that seeing his name made me enjoy this more but I can see some of his talents going into what they're doing here. Before I move on into my first point this is really a psychological thriller mixed with horror. My first breakdown will be of the character of Wilson. He's leery about taking on this role but once he has But once he has, the money he is making is good. He can live the life that he's wanted. When he meets Melanie and they hit it off, he's on top of the world. I believe there's a bit of social commentary here about the success going to his head. He's losing himself in this role that he's playing. The puka portion of his personality allows him to do some of the more bad things. This all makes sense as well at the end for the final reveal. I was a bit shocked there, but I did find it quite interesting. And then next I wanted to delve a bit more into his relationship with Melanie and Ty. Ty's father was abusive. It doesn't say if it was physical or emotional, but Melanie is damaged from it. Now, we end up getting to see what it is by the end of the movie, though. Wilson is doing everything that he can to help her through her issues. The problem, though, becomes that as things in his life falls apart, he it causes to distance herself from him because he starts to become more agitated and much more volatile. He can't handle this, and I will say I could connect here. I've been broken up with and have done things that I tried to get the person back with, And I will say, not everything that I did was smart or everything that I did was, you know, healthy. Looking back, I can see that I shouldn't have done some of these things, and it was toxic. And it wasn't really helping any of the parties involved. It has taken me to do some growing up to see that, but it allows me, you know, a little bit more perspective on all of this as well. Then the last thing for this story is I'll briefly go over to the toy of Puka. I love that we're seeing capitalism here, as really poking fun at things like the Tickle Me Elmo or Furbies, which were all kind of, you know, fads that lasted for so long. This toy is actually pretty dumb, and conspiracy theorists could have a field day with this, as it is recording things that we say, and, I mean... All he had to do was say that they've ca- it can connect to Wi-Fi and then people could kind of monitor us. It is funny, though, to see how this toy is so popular and then fades away quite fast. It is really a situation of, you know, getting out of Dodge before everything falls apart because none of these fads, you know, last all that long. Now, where I want to go to next would be the acting. Since it's really just a character study of Wilson, I thought that Hatendi does a great job here. We get to see him as the normal version of himself. We see him on Cloud 9, and then as things fall apart, we see him become unhinged. This all culminates to the truth of his character, which works. Rose, Daly, Dickie, Berryman, and the rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed in developing and interacting with the character as well. Now, the next time I would go to the effects. We really don't get a lot of them, and what we do is subdued. Now, part of this could be that this is, you know, done by Blumhouse Television for Hulu, but most everything we get is done practically, which I could see. I think that the bit of blood that we get was good making Wilson more and more disheveled as his life falls apart makes a lot of sense and I do have to give credit to the cinematography here as well. The use of color filters especially red really works. It makes a lot of sense as it is associated with rage and naughty when it comes to Puka, and then it also kind of plays back into the end why Puka's eyes are blue or that Puka's eyes are red as well. And the last thing I really wanted to go over briefly would be the soundtrack. I'd say that the selections fit for what was needed and it was interesting to see that Bear McCrary's Name was there. As for doing the score, not his best work, but it does. You know, it was solid. What I will say is that I love the theme song for Puka. If I can find that, I'm gonna definitely gonna throw it on the episode as well. So now, with that said, I thought that this was a solid little movie. I'll be honest, I haven't seen a bad one yet from the End of the Dark episodes. None of them have been really all that great. They're just kind of you know solid. I thought that the performance of Hatendi here as the lead was solid. I like the social commentary that we're working with. The ideas that we're exploring are very relevant. And the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The effects we get are solid and the soundtrack fit. So if I had to rate this movie, I would call it a above average movie overall. Not great, but you know, definitely kind of enjoyable and there's some interesting aspects to it. So I came in here with a 7 out of 10 on this movie. So I'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that, but what I am going to do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review, which is the sequel to this one. Here in Spring Valley... There's people obsessed with puka. Oh, perfection.
1: You know the story about the chick who created it, right? <laughs> she was wearing a puka mask. Murdered. Murdered her husband. Then lit herself on fire. Really? Yep. <laughs> Fucked up, huh? The unveiling's next week with the new puka design. So, get started on my speech ASAP. What if we made our own challenge you can do to summon puka? You should post it. The puka, 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 puka Challenge puka. is the biggest internet sensation of all time. The internet literally created a monster. It's taken on a life of its own.
0: And then I'm going to follow up with the second featured review here of Into the Dark Puka Lives. This is directed by Alejandro Brugues. This is written by Ryan Koppel. It stars Malcolm Barrett, Lindy Greenwood, and Felissa Day. And then it also has Jonah Ray, Gavin Steenhouse, Amir Tala, Laura Topel, Ben Weidensvig, Motoki Maxted, Will Wheaton, Rachel Bloom, Willow Boyd lori perez alexander ward and gene freeman this is a horror thriller that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 6.0 on imdb and a 2.7 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a group of 30 something friends from high school create their own creepy pasta about puka for laughs but are shocked when it becomes so viral on the internet that it actually manifests more murderous versions of the creature now the reason i checked this one out as i have always saying is that it was twofold Over on here, I like to pair up a 2020 film with an older one that has, you know, some sort of theme. Since Puka was a Christmas movie, I could pair it up with this new one here. Much like the original, I didn't know much about this one aside from they were bringing Puka back. And then before I kind of get into the recap and then my analysis, I do have some notes on some of the key players. The director of Bruges has directed six films. Five of them have been in horror with the first one being one of the dead now i remember this coming out but for whatever reason i didn't take it home while i was working at family video as it was on the new release wall i think it's because the title sounded a little bit cheesy the cover of it looked as well and that one only had one case on the new release wall and i kind of tended to avoid those ones but i mean to be honest i've heard good things so i do want to go back and check it out at some point now then he did do a short in the abcs of death 2 which i haven't seen yet as i didn't love the first one then he did a short in Nightmare Cinema, which I did like, along with doing a segment in 50 States of Fright. Then the writer here of Coppel, this is his second film that he's written. The other one was a horror film from 2014 entitled Death Do Us Part. Now, I haven't seen that one yet. not to be honest, I really haven't even heard of it. Then our lead here of Barrett has been in 16 films. Of these, two are in horror. The first one was Reunited, and then now this movie. I haven't seen that one, but I have seen him in The Hurt Locker and Swim Fan, which you know i did end up enjoying both of those greenwood has six acting credits and features at this time with this is the only one in horror though and the only one that i've seen then we have day she was in 18 films prior coming into this one actually this would be her 18th i think technically it appears that only one has been in the horror genre aside from this which was red werewolf hunter another one that i remember coming out while i worked at family video but i never took that home so i haven't seen that one but I did see her in the movie of Bring It On Again, which is a little bit embarrassing to admit to here. But what I will do now is that we start this movie off with Ellie, who is Rachel Bloom. She is the creator of the original toy of Pooka. Now, she was fired, and her husband comes home, and he's quite upset to learn about her being fired. I believe he is David, portrayed by Wheaton. Things don't go well as he takes his rage out on the toys, which causes Ellie to snap. She stabs him to death before setting herself, his body, and the house on fire movie then shifts us to the present, which we are one year into the future. Then this is, you know, we have Derek here, who is portrayed by Barrett. He's driving in that we see that his phone is being blown up on social media. The messages he, are, he is getting aren't good. He has been living in New York City as a writer, and he made the mistake of coming after a popular influencer of Jax, who is portrayed by Maxted. Now, he is now trying to have him canceled for, you know, this attack on him. Luckily for Derek, his friend of Molly, who is portrayed by Day, and her husband of Matt, who is Ray, are letting him stay with them until this blows over. The problem is that it requires him to come back to his hometown of Spring Valley. He's not thrilled by this idea, as time moves there much slower, and I mean, he's used to living in you know New York City and actually having a pretty good life there before everything went down. Derek does look out at getting a job at SCI, which is a company behind the Puka Toy. Now, he's going to be working there as a copywriter. Also working there is his ex of Susan, who is portrayed by Greenwood. They are still pretty cordial, but there are feelings that are still there too from either of them, you know, is that they both still kind of have those. They're just kind of hiding them. Now, they also have a friend of Benny Taylor, who is Steenhouse, who is a local deputy. Now, despite returning home, Jax is still after... Derek and his followers are as well Derek ends up having a stalker that is messing with his life like he's vandalizing his car sending him pictures as he's like stalking him and everything like that and it's quite creepy but Derek one night comes up with the idea that while hanging out with Susan Molly Matt and Benny it is to mess with the internet by creating their own like Momo creepypasta like post they come up with the puka challenge Which, from everything that I remember, it is they have to eat some ash, they have to do the puka dance, and there's like these things you have to say at the end as well. Now, Jax helps us spread it, but this ritual might actually be conjuring up something that's much scarier version of this child's toy of puka. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap of this movie, as I feel like that gets you up to speed with what this sequel is doing. What I will say is I'm so glad that they took a different route into what this movie was doing. I established in my review of Puka that that was more of a psychological thriller where this one takes us into the supernatural and becomes kind of a creature feature. I'm actually glad that they stuck with the concept as well. Before delving into more of the story elements, I did want to say that I was a bit confused as to when this movie was actually taking place in the original one. I'm guessing that this is indeed a sequel. The original toy I know in that one failed, so I know that they're unveiling a newer one now there is a spoiler that i didn't give in that first one that i'm not going to do here to the original one but i don't want to you know kind of go into that but i can see how this one is taking place. As i do think that you know the puka toy has been released and this is just an updated version that we're kind of leading up to for this movie what i was going to say is a spoiler doesn't really factor into this from the first movie and you don't actually technically need to watch these in order to understand both of them as they kind of just are their own entities but for this movie we are revealed to the idea that Puka, you know, could be here. Molly brings up that there is a thing called a Tolpa, which she explains is that Buddhist monks are able to will an entity into existence. They normally aren't scary like we get here, but they do go on to state they cannot be controlled once they're brought into our world by having this ritual of puka go viral there are so many people on the internet believing in it that it starts to come to life and killing people now this is where i think the movie loses itself a bit the whole concept of puka is that it can be naughty or nice the movie would have been better served for me if it doesn't punish all those that conjure it this turns it into a take on like the bloody mary Candyman, like urban legend game it would have been nice to see it attack those that truly deserve it The movie could still have it coming after our main group of people just have them reveal different things that puka could be punishing them for i guess the truth here would be that we've all committed sins that we could probably be punished for the other explanation is that as the lore goes out of control with the people changing it it is possible that puka could be punishing anyone who conjures it like we get here ellie ties back into this as well which could reinforce why everybody is being punished and then what i also like here is the social commentary this movie is looking and partially poking fun at cancel culture I thought Derek did something bad to have Jax after him, but it seems like Derek just wrote a book pointing out the problems with influencers like Jax and this, you know, influencers just acting childish, having his followers trying to destroy Derek's life. It is completely horrible to do this to someone who doesn't really deserve it. Susan though does point out that Derek could just legitimately delete his social media profiles, but he refuses to. It is showing us that he's partially addicted to it, hence why what Jax is doing is ruining him. To be honest though, I have considered redoing my social medias in the past, but it's just so much work to reestablish what I already have. And having seen the dangers of it, I also don't care enough either about my social media. It's really just more to share like this podcast or my reviews. And I mean, I do interact with people that I enjoy, but I mean, I'm not a person who's going out there seeking, you know, to be internet famous and to try to get, you know, verified and have all of these like extra followers or anything like that. Like, I just kind of use it as something to kind of get my stuff out there, and then interact with people I actually care about interacting with. Now, since I've delved into the characters a bit, I think I should, you know, look at their performances. I think that Barrett is solid as our lead here. Susan points out things about him that he's never really considered. He needs the growth to become a better person since he isn't that much different from Jax. I really liked Greenwood, Day, Ray, Steenhouse as, you know, the rest of the group that hang out with him. They're all distinct and they bring their own spin on their roles to set them apart. I would also say that the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Shoutouts to the actors who portray different versions of Puka as well. Then the effects here is where I'm going to go now. I will say, I really liked what they did with Puka. There seems to be these two different, you know, scary versions of it. One is more animalistic, where the other one is more demonic. These both look to be done practically, which I can appreciate for sure. The use of the red filters on the light also helps here, and that's also kind of bringing up something from the original. I do know that this one did shy away from showing us blood and some of the attacks. I think a lot of this is that Blumhouse TV and this was made for Hulu. I would have liked to have seen a bit more, but what I saw was good. So now before I close this out, I have just a couple pieces of trivia that I kind of wanted to bring up and one really kind of struck with me. But the first thing that I'll share is that Felicia Day, who plays Molly, is also in a movie called Chasing Molly from 2019. Matt, who is Jonah Ray, is watching a zombie movie and he's actually a huge zombie fan. But the important piece is that every End of the Dark episode is supposed to take place either on or during or being based on a specific holiday that occurs during that month that it premieres. In Puka Lives, one of the characters says that Puka looks like an evil Easter bunny. But other than that, no other reference is made to Easter and there's absolutely no indication all that, oh, that this film takes place on that holiday or that it takes place in April. Not really a huge deal, but it is something that's kind of interesting to bring up there. So that's really all I wanted to say about the sequel. I think that they took the story to a place where it should as the original one doesn't need its story expanded anymore. I like that they're making the supernatural and incorporating social commentary on cancel culture and getting, you know, viral on the internet. I thought the acting was solid for what was needed. The effects were about the same as well and the effects fit. If there's anything that I'd like to see more of would have been the deaths and the attacks, but I like what we get, but I also get why we don't overall I'd say this is above average overall this movie was a bit of a step down for me from the original but not by much and I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 here so that's all I really wanted to say about this movie again not going to do a spoiler section but what I am going to do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. me back one last time. And just to close everything out here for episode number sixty of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile@gmail.com at gmail.com. Anything that you'd like to have read on the show, please just let me know in that. And if you don't want me to read anything, just also let me know there. It would be just great though to hear any sort of feedback about any things that I'm doing on here that you like and anything doing that you don't like. And then, if you'd like to read any of the written reviews from this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the dead at horrorreview.webnode.com. And then on Facebook, you can become friends with me, and I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then The Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And all of those links will be in the show notes to help make everything a little bit easier there for you. And then the last thing I would do that whatever podcasting device you're listening to me on, if you can make sure that you're subscribed so you never miss a new episode when they drop. And then also if you could rate and review on there as well, just so that way I can you know figure it out again what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as getting out to you know a bigger audience out there. But I do want to thank all those that have been you know listening as well. It is you know very heartwarming to see when all this hard work that I put into this podcast and that there are actually people listening to it out there. So I guess the last thing I'll say here is I do want to thank you for that. So then for episode number 61, as I've already kind of alluded to in the intro, is going to be my end of year list for 2020. I'm going to go ahead and list all of them through, you know, from the worst one that I've seen to the best. At this moment, I've watched 81, but I'm going to try to sneak in as many as I can before that episode comes out. I'm not going to do what I did last year where I was a little bit more in depth about each one because every single one has been reviewed on this podcast on past episodes from this year and then the previous year as well. So what I am going to do is just kind of, you know, say a little bit about each one and then I will give them, you know, what their number is in order and everything like that just, you know, as a heads up there. And I will, you know, have some other non-2020 releases in there, I'm sure, as well as I go. But... That's all I really kind of want to do for here. As against, again, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I do want to say here in closing that whatever you do today, I hope you have a great time in doing it and that you're safe out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.